Hello and welcome to Fork Tongues, conversations with foreigners living in France. I'm Derek Rawson. I'm from Australia, but I've been living in France for more than 10 years now, first in Paris and now in Poitiers. I started this podcast as a way of rediscovering my love of France and French culture. With my guests, I delve into all aspects of living in France, from language and culture to meeting locals and discovering the food, giving you a glimpse of what daily life in France is really like, at least from a foreigner's perspective. We also talk about our home countries too, so not only will you learn about life in France, you'll also hear about life in other countries around the world as well. For this episode, the first following the extended French summer break, we're leaving Poitiers for the first time on this podcast, heading to Vernet-les-Bains in the Pyrenees, the Pyrénées Orientales, which is the region on the eastern Mediterranean side of the mountain range. I spent two weeks there with my family during the summer holidays, renting a house belonging to friends of my parents in Australia. And through those distant owners, I was lucky to meet some of the local expats. This episode's guest is one of those. Michael Strutt is an affable, insightful, and incredibly knowledgeable Englishman who has been coming to France for decades and recently took the decision to settle permanently in Verne. Our conversation covers many topics, like his early experience of France and French people, the British connection to Verne, the Anglican church there with the only set of bells in France that can be rung in the English style, local history, speaking and reading French, understanding French etiquette, just to name a few. This was a fascinating discussion. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to Fork Tongues, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, here being in Vernet-les-Bains, and you've been kind enough to welcome me into your home. Perhaps we can start by, if you remember, when was the first time you came to Vernet-les-Bains? Oh, Vernet-les-Bains, I would have come here, I suppose, about 20 years ago, but I had a a love affair with France for a lot longer than that. I think uh, my first visit to France was on an exchange um, when I was 14. Okay. So I was doing French at school, a bit boring, you know, just very um, old-fashioned way of learning the language. Uh, but my parents uh, thought yeah, it would be a good idea to send me away. At the time, there was um, in our uh, town in Herne Bay in Kent, there were about 400 French students who came over every year and uh, they were put up in houses around the town. And my parents, I think because they were interested to have somebody else in the house and earn a bit of money, they invited somebody in and that became an exchange. So I went over to Paris when I was 14 for a couple of weeks, complete immersion in the language, but it, it made what I was doing at school very, very real. And um, yeah, it was good fun. What was the experience of Paris at 14 like? Well, it was... Uh, <laughs> It was, I would say, a culture shock. It was great. I mean, I just loved being uh, out of the country, experiencing a new culture. Uh, I stayed in, I can still remember the address, uh, 99 Rue de Vaugirard, which is in, I think, the first arrondissement in Paris. And it was a, it was a, a reasonably smart flat, nothing special. I didn't realise, actually, to have a flat in that part of Paris, <laughs> this family must have been very, very well off. Uh, and I went to their second house in um, holiday home in Normandy for a week. Uh, I remember that I used to get a slab of meat for dinner every night, and it was—I didn't know what it was. I ate it, and, they, uh, uh, and uh, my mother you know, used to have occasionally as a, a treat fillet steak at home. And uh, my mother sort of murdered it. <laughs> but the stuff I had in France was uh, saignant. I was really red in the middle, and I really liked it. And at the end of the week, I said, "What is that?" this meat and they said well it's, it's roast beef I said oh I've never had that before not thinking that I had and they said but you're English roast beef <laughs> <laughs> 
So it was a great experience. And, and subsequently, I, in that college to, that had uh, French students every summer, I became their English assistant uh, in my sort of university vacations. And, um, and their cricket coach as well. Taught the French along with my brother to play cricket. How did they go? Uh, they found it very difficult to have a straight arm. They used to run up to the wicket. They sort of appreciated the rules. And the bowlers would get to the stumps and then start to bowl correctly. And then at the last minute, they'd break their arm and fling the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, but it was, it was good fun. So then subsequently you came back to France sort of quickly? Or uh, well, I, um, many times really because I, I carried on studying French to A-level. I worked in this college and a lot of the kids there, they didn't really want to speak English. They just wanted a holiday. So they spoke French to me as did the staff. So that took my French on a bit. And then I started teaching and um, I had the long summer holidays. And just about every year for the next 40 years, we uh, came to France so I probably know France, the regions of France, better than, than the UK, actually. So but yeah. I was still living in the UK at the time, but coming over every every summer. And visiting different places, not just the same... Uh... No, no, no. I had a, a trailer tent and then a caravan and used to travel all over the place, yeah. Family holidays. And then I changed my job. I left teaching and I had been helping the family business, a little antiques business. And uh, I used to do some of the buying at the weekends in, in auctions and I would buy sometimes buy clocks and I taught my some of the times they didn't work so I taught myself how to repair them and when I, when I decided to, to leave teaching after about 20 years I thought well, what skills have I got and the only skill I could really think of was the ability to repair clocks so I did a, a professional training in right. horology and then set myself up in a, a clock repair business that subsequently became a sort of uh, watch and jewellery business which I'm still um, involved with when I go back to the UK. I'll get a phone call saying, there's enough work for you to come back and do now. So off I go, do, do that work, and then come back again. How long has that been going on for? Uh, that's been going on 20 years now. Jeez. During that time, we've had a house here in Vene for 20 years, but we only moved to this place about eight years ago because previously it was a holiday home. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it became a place that we envisaged living in. And... Uh, and then Brexit came along, so <laughs> decisions had to be made. Was I going to be uh, based in the UK or in France? And it was a no-brainer, really. I've always considered myself European. So it's been quite a tricky transition, mm-hmm. but um, just about there now. Tricky in what sense? Oh, just French administration has been very difficult. Uh, lots of things have uh, took us quite a, a while to get our, our health cards we needed the health cards to make uh, our applications for residents, uh, for our residence cards. We had uh, some problems with the health cards. That took about eight months. And then, of course, there was a huge uh, rush of people trying to get their residence cards. And uh, we had to be patient and wait. But there were snags along the, the way. Paperwork that was lost by the French administration had to be produced again. Questions asked to which they already had the answer. <laughs> I'm sure you know how you usual <laughs> Yes. Absolutely, but it's just about uh, just about through that now. So we'll see how it goes. So coming, well, returning to twenty years ago when you first visited Venet le Bain, was it love at first sight? You might say, or coup de cœur, as yeah. they say. Yes, absolutely, it was. I mean, on the holidays that we'd, we'd taken, we'd often looked at sort of tumble down properties in in rural areas and just uh, seen them in estate agents' windows and thought, wow, property is very cheap in France, uh, particularly in rural areas. 
And um, it was just a sort of pipe dream that one day we might get somewhere in France because we were quite happy travelling around. But when I lost the school holidays, it became more of an imperative to find some way of coming to France easily and not having to, not being able to travel around, but having a base. So we came on a holiday actually to the coast, to um, Collioure, near the Spanish border, with the intention of doing a, a two-week trip up the, up the, the valleys, Tet Valley and uh, the Ode Valley. And we did the first valley, which um, is the, the Tech Valley, and that uh, that was quite an enclosed valley. We didn't like that very much. So we, we came back and came up the main valley, the Tech Valley, that runs all the way up to, to Andorra. And uh, we needed to stay the night somewhere, and there was an offshoot from the main valley up towards Vernet Le Bain. We said, well, let's go up there, see if we see what that's like. Found a, a cheap hotel and really liked the environment because it was an open open valley with plenty of space. It, we're not enclosed here. We've got uh, uh, the Canigou Mountain right on our doorstep, which um, you know is very beautiful to look out at summer and winter when you get up in the morning and the sunshine. And uh, I just fell in love with the place, and we just um, stayed one night and two nights. I said, well, should we really should we bother with doing the rest of <laughs> the rest of the trip? around the valleys and going to Carcassonne and places like that and uh, we decided that we'd stay a bit longer here and in fact we ended up staying two weeks and in that time I looked in the estate agent's window and I said, I said to my wife Kath you know the property is really quite cheap considering it's near the Mediterranean um, should we go and have a look at the place for fun so we looked at a few places which two or three of which were absolutely awful but one of which was a little uh, like a doll's house really just a sort of like two up two down only just around the corner from here but it had a beautiful view it had a little garden with a, in a grotto because it was right up to the rock place tiny little house and we thought oh that's really nice and um this was only two days before we were due to go back and on our very last night i was talking to my wife and saying you know do you think it'd be a good idea do you think we ought to buy somewhere we hadn't really considered it very seriously and uh she said, uh, well, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. She said, oh, you're such a ditherer, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> We've riled me. So I said, no, I'm not. I can be decisive if I have to be. So I marched out of the house, went up to the uh, the, the place we'd looked at and uh, knocked on the door. Normally you go with the estate agent. So this was a bit irregular. And it was about half eight at night. I said, do you mind awfully if we just have another look round? And they said, no, 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 not at all. So they showed showed us around and it was dark and the little grotto in the garden had fairy lights in it and it just confirmed what I thought about the place during daylight hours and uh, I thought, oh, this went straight back to my wife and said come on they don't mind us going to have another look she had another look and um, then the next morning I phoned up and put an offer in on this place and got on the plane and <laughs> within eight weeks it was ours um, fantastic. it was yeah definitely uh, love at first sight really uh, and uh, you know we hadn't intend hadn't set off that uh, holiday with the intention of buying anything. People say it's a foolish thing to do to to act on that sort of impulse, but uh, it's worked out extremely well. <laughs> Sounds like it. So what was it about Vernet de Bar? I mean, you mentioned a few things, Open Valley and being below Kenigou. I've heard that there's a real history of English people moving to the town and, and uh, the region. Is do you have um, a theory about that? And I uh, yeah, that's very true. This is. Um, there are not that many English people who live in the town now, but there is a, a strong connection to Britain here, particularly England. If you go up and through the old village onto the square outside the Mary, there is the only monument in Europe to the uh, Entente Cordiale, 
between England, France and some other countries, 1904. And we talk about the Entente Cordiale, but perhaps don't realise it was actually a treaty that was signed between uh, various countries at that time. A few years ago, we celebrated the centenary and there were big celebrations here. And the English community that used to come here mostly came in the latter years of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century, uh, when Verne-les-Bains was a very popular spa resort for its um, thermal springs. And the likes of Rudyard Kipling and various other English dignitaries and uh, the well-to-do came and spent their summer holidays here, but particularly for the, the, the hot springs. And um, that sort of British connection and the, the holiday makers, the richer holiday makers from the UK coming over here continued up to the First World War. Then the First World War was a sort of break in that. That declined after the First World War and really came to an end after 1940 when there was um, a huge flood that swept away all the posh hotels in the middle of the village. There's just the casino and the Hotel du Portugal, which are slightly higher up, that still remain. The rest was swept away and that was really the end of that sort of era. And now Vernier is a sort of fairly sleepy village where people come to walk in the mountains and enjoy the mountain air. So the hot springs are no longer... They're, no, they are, they're still operating and they're more now for health purposes. So you can get a prescription on the French uh, National Health Service to have a three-week cure paid for by the state, so, which is... <laughs> which is uh, I mean, the French sort of believe quite strongly that in the um, therapeutic value of these thermal resorts and uh, people still come in their, in their numbers. It's a very important uh, aspect of the economic life of the village because when the town goes to sleep, really, for three months in the winter when the, the town, uh, the thermal spa, shuts... And then when it reopens again, there's a lot more activity in the village. Uh, and then you know, it's a short summer season for tourists, summer tourists, really just July and August. And then, as you've probably seen, the, the village gets busy. Not quite so busy this year, but it gets busy mostly with on the campsites get full and people come for walking and there's plenty of uh, activities laid on by the council. Yes, and that, that British connection is very interesting because something that I've been involved in quite, um, quite a lot is the there is one of the few Anglican churches in in France is in this village Saint Georges and that was built by public subscription by the likes of I think Rudyard Kipling was a donator Princess Beatrice daughter of uh, Queen Victoria she was a donator and they built this church in I think it was opened in 1911. And um, I've been involved in liaison between the Mary, the commune, and the church because it had fallen in, it had been used by the Catholic Church, it had fallen into decay. It was a very nice building. And then we persuaded the council to buy it for a euro so they would uh, maintain the building, they would use it for concerts. But the, the local Anglican community, such as it is, very small, uh, would still be able to use it for services. Now, an interesting thing happened in that one of those one of those parishioners, he was a very keen bell ringer, and he kept looking at inside the, the tower of the church, which is was completely empty, and saying, "Oh, you know, you could have a nice ring of bells in here." And I said, "Yeah, but who would ring them in the south of France? Come on!" And uh, he said, "No, no, no. I think I think they would. And it'd be great to teach a local band." And uh, I said, "Yeah, yeah, yes." And then his unfortunately his his wife died. And he, this became 
a fixed idea in his head that it would be a really nice idea as a memorial to her, because she was a very good and very keen bell ringer, as, as were both of them, to actually install a ring of bells. So I was still sceptical, and I said to him, you never get the money. I mean, you're talking about uh, probably over £100,000. He says, I think I think there's people who would pay, who would contribute. So he put um, a crowdfunding uh, site up on Facebook. And within a week, he had about £50,000. And in the end, the, the project was fully funded. It cost about £120,000 approximately. There was a committee formed and then we, we had a, the task of getting additional funding in France and we went to the Fondation du Patrimoine, the sort of French equivalent of English heritage and and asked them for funding and they were forthcoming with that and that was matched by the uh, the Conseil General of the department. So yeah, the, the bells were um, founded, cast in, in Loughborough in England, in the last surviving bell foundry in the UK. Uh, we invited the two deputy mayors over to England. They were there. We we put them up for a weekend. We all went to Loughborough, watched them being cast, which was quite an experience. And then a few months later, they were put on a lorry, brought over to France, and um, we they were professionally installed, but some of us helped out as well. And then we had the French television arrive because these are the only bells in France and only the third tower in Europe with bells that can be rung in the English manner. So if you go to a village in, in France, you'll hear the bells that uh, you might hear the Angelus at, uh, mid, in the morning, midday and the evening. At the weekends before service, you'll hear a sort of discordant clattering of, <laughs> of bells. But English bells are rung differently. They're rung by ringers, uh, you know, pulling ropes. And they, because they're mounted on a wheel, they can be controlled. And so the, the, you know, the order of the bells can be changed and they can make quite a, an attractive musical sound. So we have 10 bells. Um, we now have a, a team of ringers. Um, we've trained two French ringers and we'll be training up more. But uh, we, we have a local, a local band of about six and then visitors. And in fact, these bells are, are now well known in the Anglo-Saxon world because uh, we have uh, a short list of ringing bands in the UK who are waiting to come over. Covid has stopped it but we've got um, I think the College Youth which are probably the most prestigious band of, of ringers in the UK. They ring you know at uh, royal weddings and things. They, they want to come over. After the installation of the bells you know the television came, local TV came down, it was on the uh, local news and what have you. Then it died down for a few months and then we had a a big bell ringing bell festival in the village where the we used to have um, Fête de la Belle Époque. The Belle Époque was sort of the equivalent period of Edwardian Britain. And the women used the women of the village used to love dressing up in their in their finery and the all the vintage cars would come out for this Fête de la Belle Époque, which then um, stopped happening because there was a change was a local politics really, there was a change in the administration and uh, it was a bit of a falling out somewhere, so it didn't happen after that. But when we suggested that, that they might like to join us in the Bell Festival and dress up um, in period costume, they did. And then we had some clog dancers come over from Yorkshire. And we had a two-day festival, which was... Um, uh, people still talk about it. It was great. That sounds great. It was great, yeah. Is it physical work to be a bell ringer? I mean, I don't know how much they wage individual bells. Well, our bells here are quite light. The... the heaviest is only 250 kilos 
and now only only yeah but when i'm in the uk and i ring in my local village town the heaviest bell there is nearly a ton and some in some larger churches and cathedrals you might be going up to sort of two two tons i think the bell in lincoln in liverpool cathedral is more than that i can't remember the weight but they're, they're very heavy and they take quite a, a while to quite a lot of effort to get them into an inverted position which is what you have to do to start ringing them but once they're upside down and resting upside down it doesn't require much of a pull to for them to swing down and up to the equilibrium on the other side because um, they're on a wheel. Uh, so people think it's because they're very heavy. It's very physical. It isn't really, particularly our, our set of bells. It's more of a mental exercise than a physical exercise because method ringing involves, it's not exactly a musical score, but it's numeric and it's mathematical to some extent because you know the, there are patterns in the way the, the order of the bells change. So it's more of a a mental exercise and a physical exercise although it, it's a skill it does take uh, a few months for an individual to to learn and it's dangerous if it's not done properly so you have to have you have to have a, a master ringer standing next to you teaching you um, how to do it and keeping you safe okay and then how many people ring at the same time well in the, it depends on the number of bells okay. now in our church here there's 10 bells most uh, village churches in the uk would have six or eight but it's one person. One person to each bell, yeah. That's fantastic. In terms of the restoration of the, the church, is that a long process as well? I don't know if it needed to be a reinforced tower for the bells. Or... Uh, the tower was in good shape, as was the, the, um, the actual structure of the building. There's no real problem with that. But it was the floor, really, that was a problem and the roof. The roof needed to be redone and the floor had to be underpinned from beneath because it was sagging. And then we raised some money for that. The council chipped in as well. So um, that was the first project was to get the church back into, to have the the arrêté, I think it's called, lifted because the, the prefect had sort of said, no, it's a dangerous building, it can't be used. So it, it sat there unused until that uh, restoration was done and, and then that restriction was lifted and we could use it again. And it's, you know, it's used for concerts. It's a shared use building now. But it's very much part of the uh, the history of the village, uh, as is the uh, you know the, the monument to the Entente Cordiale, the the Kipling story. Sounds like a real bridge between English expats, English inhabitants, and, and the local French. Yes, I mean uh, we've the English community here, such as it is, and as I say, it is it is very small. Have always been well received by both the, the French and the Catalans. I think there's probably more suspicion between the Catalans here and the French who, who come down than there is of the of the few Brits that are here. Obviously, in terms of commerce, the village is only too happy to to have people come in and spend their money and uh, buy up old the old derelict houses and do them up, which some people have done. And I've always found. That to be part of village life here is, uh, and integrate with the, you know, the local community has been, I think, for me, very important. Some people make the mistake of just sticking with the expat community. Mm-hmm. and uh, But I think it's if you want to spend any time out here, rather than just treating it as a, as a holiday home, then you have to find ways of meeting local people and, and trying to integrate. And I've, you know, I've always found that being well-received, uh, you know, because I've sat on meetings with the council for organising funding and what have you. It's meant that I've met quite a few French people. And, uh, and I've got, uh, I think one thing that's 
quite interesting about living in France is the importance of what they call the la vie associative. That's the the number of clubs and societies that there are in a, in small communities. More than in the UK, I think local people regard that those as very important. And there's oh, there must be scores of local associations in our village, from uh, the organisation for trekking in Nepal, the subaqua group, the, the church painting groups, all sorts. And um, I've become involved in three of those. So we have to have a, a bell ringing association, which is recently formed because, you know, as a legal entity, we have to be an, an association. And then um, there's a, a painting group to which I belong, uh, Mille et Une Couleur. So that's another association. And uh, I'm involved with that. And um, the, then the church itself. So it's the church, the painting and the, the bells, all associa- association, all with their annual general meetings and their secretaries, presidents, all conforming to the law of 1904. <laughs> it's, uh, it's um, yeah, it's a very important part of village life. It must be a bit easier for you speaking French because I understand you speak French very well. Uh, Do you think that's a challenge for other... I'm not, I, I'm not bilingual. I can speak enough to... Uh, you know, hold my own at, uh, yeah, if I go out socially in the evening, that's okay. At meetings, I can I can get by. But I wouldn't say this thing about, uh, it's so important to learn the language I think, when you want to live in a, a foreign country. And I think, you know, there are different levels of language learning, and I'm sure you know this as a teacher, that, you know, some people say, oh, I speak French. And what they mean is they can order a cafe in the bar. <laughs> And then there's other people who say, I can speak French, and that means they can have a little chat with their neighbour and, and perhaps um, sort out one or two things when we're out shopping. Uh, for me, the acid test, I suppose, is can you answer the telephone without any sort of non-verbal help and not be completely flummoxed when somebody asks you whether it's the plumber or somebody trying to sell you health insurance and uh, they're speaking with um, a different accent and you can you can talk to them on the phone and understand them and make yourself understood. And I think that is I think a critical level of, of language proficiency that you need. And I'm I'm interested in language. I've always learned like the French language, so I do. Well, I studied it. I studied it beyond school, really, just for my own interest. And now I've uh, I watch French television, listen to French radio. I, but even, even now, you know, if I listen to the news in French, no problem at all. I can understand everything that's said. If I listen to, um, I don't know, or watch a, a French police drama, there's one in, called Engrenage, Spiral in the UK, uh, which has been very popular. It's run to seven series. And you get the, the criminal underworld and the police talking to each other, rapid fire French, lots of slang, the characters swallowing their words, and you think... Is that really what they said? You follow the subtitles, you see a sentence on the screen and said, I've done this, I've looked at it, read the subtitle and said, they didn't say that, surely. (laughs) And I've played it back and listened to it two or three times and said, well, actually, they did say that, but there were three words missing that they just sort of swallowed. And we do the same in English, of course, but I think um, guttural French is really quite difficult to understand. (laughs) I agree. Do you read in French today? Yes, yeah, that's... uh, I generally read sort of crime fiction things. I was just reading a local book called, um, which would run the Prix Goncourt, uh, Le Berger des Abeilles, which is a, a story 
about based all around here during the Second World War and the uh, the retirada when the after the Spanish War the Republicans came over the border in in their hundred two hundred fifty thousand I think nowhere to live and they ended up um, being placed well initially on Argelès Beach. And the conditions were absolutely atrocious. And then they were housed in, um, well, what later were actually concentration camps. And there's one at Rivesal near Perpignan, which is quite a sad place, actually. Uh, and it, it was used at, um, at that time for housing some of the, uh, the refugees. And then it had a, a sort of checkered history because then it, it became a sort of concentration camp when the, uh, there was a Nazi occupation of the whole of France. The Vichy government uh, collaborated with sending Jews from from that camp. It was a very sad time in, in local and French history. Mm. A lot of Spanish people, uh, lots of people of Spanish descent live here because their ancestors came over with the Retirada. But the, the book that I was talking about, it, it covers that. It covers the resistance around here. There's a village close to here called Valmagna, which won the Croix de Guerre because... Um, of the local resistance held the Germans at bay for several hours um, while the local population, all but four of them, fled into the hills because the the Germans had decided that uh, Valmagna was a bed of resistance and uh, they were just going to wipe it out, really. Um, but there were a couple of the resistance leaders were, were caught and tortured and it was a very sad, very sad history. And, um, you know, of course, it's still a subject that's, quite difficult to talk about around here with local families. Some local families might want to avoid talking about it because they were sad times, but also because, you know, after the war, of course, everybody had been a member of the resistance, but that wasn't true. There'd been collaborators, there'd been people who had just, uh, if they hadn't been collaborators, had uh, not joined the resistance or not really lifted a finger. And that led to, you know, family disputes and fallings out. It was a very difficult time. And, and round here in this region, close to the Spanish border, there's all that history of the, the retirada with the, the Spanish coming over with Nazi occupation, the, the, the Vichy race, regime that preceded it. Yeah, interesting history, but difficult. How important do you think it is to, to know the history of the, the place you live in, especially as a kind of foreigner? And... Um. I think it gives you insights into how local people think. I don't think now, particularly referring back to the war, now we're sort of a couple of generations beyond that, that, that that's particularly important. But it is, I think it's more important to understand some of the, the cultural references, you know, what what's important to French people, how French people have different customs, different different habits to, or a different way of thinking about the world to, <laughs> to, uh, to the Brits. You know, we are... Uh, we are close neighbours. We've got, uh, I think, a love-hate relationship, uh, you know, which uh, but a huge mutual respect. And uh, you know, when it comes to rugby, then obviously, <laughs> or any uh, sporting contest, then you know, it's uh, definitely there are they are the not the enemy, but they are you know vigorous opponents. But I think Brexit is going to make this harder, and has made this harder, but there's always been a close relationship between England and France. I think de Gaulle, I mean, when you say, is it important to know anything about French history? In terms of Franco-British relations, it's important to know that, um, you know, de Gaulle twice refused our entry into the common market. 
But then when we did enter, how our relationships with with France became quite convivial and there was the tunnel. Um, and now there's Brexit, which has rather um, <laughs> fouled it up, in my personal opinion. Yes. I haven't talked much about Brexit in this podcast, but brief thoughts, because I know it's a, it's a huge subject. Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a wound that is going to take a long time to heal for, for me personally and for many other British people. As I said earlier on, I've always considered myself European and it was I was very, very sad when we, we left Europe. I had been on the streets of Birmingham as a student uh, distributing leaflets for us to join the common market. And when we left the, the EU, as I say, very sad, I felt that the campaign had been awful, that uh, the Remain side had 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 run a negative campaign rather than, you know, saying what all the benefits are of being European, the peace, 80 years of peace, all sorts of other economic benefits, freedom of movement particularly, students who could study abroad, uh, welcoming foreign students into the UK, keeping a sort of very, the sort of British values of uh, good liberal values of tolerance and uh, sharing, all of that, all part and parcel, I think, of pre-Brexit Britain. And then when Brexit came along, I think we were sold a lie. I think that's become more and more obvious. We're seeing now the effects of Brexit, of not having enough lorry drivers to drive our lorries. Uh, where I come from in Lincolnshire, not having a, enough foreign workers to, to pick the crops. But more than that, it's changed the culture in, in Britain. It's made it very divisive. Uh, and I don't know... Uh, I remember I was actually in France at the time, but the area I've, where I've got um, our home in the UK is in Lincolnshire on the Fens. It's near Boston, and Boston had the highest vote for uh, in favour of Brexit at seventy percent. And people, my daughter-in-law manages the shop uh, <coughs> where I've been working, and uh, she told me it was a very sad day for her. People were going through the streets, pumping the air. With their fists saying, yes, we've done it. And uh, yes, they, they had done it, but I don't think they really realise what they've done. Uh, and that's becoming more obvious now. And uh, I find it very difficult to... I, I did find it very difficult to to have these discussions where people to, had a, just just got very entrenched views. My views, are, I, I admit it, are entrenched. I'm very much pro-European. I was very much anti-Brexit. But those on the opposite side of the fence, I find it quite difficult to, to talk with them because they, I think we're so poles apart in the view of what Britain should look like. And, um, you know, it saddens me to see, you know, images of asylum seekers crossing the channel and the amount of effort be, <laughs> being put in to keep them out when, in fact, Britain welcomes a very small proportion of asylum seekers when, when compared to other European countries, you know. And uh, and there's been an effect on the, the press as well. The press in the UK is uh, doesn't investigate, as it used to, things that need investigating, uh, you know, elements of malpractice, cronyism, call it what you like. Some, some of the foreign press are now calling it corruption uh, that this current, current government is involved in. But, you know... I don't think this is going to be a political broadcast, so I better not. I bet I can get uh, quite passionate about some of these subjects, so. yes. but I don't want to offend those those people who might listen to your podcast and and have voted Brexit because we have we have to co-inhabit the, the same world, and if, um, that spirit of tolerance must continue. I agree with you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your your ideas, your views. 
when was the last time you went to England and how do you feel about returning now? It's become very much more difficult. Um, we've been in France, uh, trying to think when we last came over. We were locked down in the UK last year and then uh, as soon as we were able, last June or July, we, we came back. We have to fulfill our residence requirement and spending six months in France. So, you know, I've been looking at the calendar and thinking, oh, I hope we don't get stuck in the UK so we don't fulfill our residence requirements. So we did we, we did go back to the UK for a couple of months because I have to return to do a little bit of work and stayed over there for two months and then came out to France, managed to get over here and then spent a lockdown in France which was not an unpleasant experience because we're fairly safe here in the mountains and uh, we were allowed to, the strictest lockdown was a one kilometre perimeter around your house for walking out for fresh air and um, one hour's exercise and, you know, you go shopping as well. But, you know, if you just look out of the window and think, well, where can I go within one kilometre? Well, <laughs> some very nice places to walk in, within one kilometre. So didn't really find that uh, too oppressive. Uh, so we we were locked down, didn't go back to the UK until May, but had to return for a family wedding. And that was extremely difficult and quite stressful uh, because at the time, just before we left, there were some very strict rules in place that you couldn't leave the French territory without a motive en papier, a compelling reason. Now, being a British national, that, that was OK. It did have a compelling reason. And I also was able to get my daughter-in-law to say, well, because the business was um, in lockdown and there were difficulties that it was very important for me to come back and help sort that out. So that was another compelling reason. But at that time, you were able to travel out of the country, but there was um, you weren't allowed to travel outside your department. <laughs> so... So I phoned up the the uh, National Police Helpline and said, surely this is a contradiction. You say I can leave France, but I can't leave my department. So how can I get to the port or the tunnel or the airport and get a flight or or, how, or get back in whatever which way? And uh, I said, it's a contradiction, isn't it? And um, I on the line said, um, yes, it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then really realised that uh, this contradiction... And so I said, well, what should I do about it? She said, I don't know. <laughs> and so um, she said, I, I think you'll be all right if you set off. So I, I did a screen grab on my computer. This was on a chat and said, well, that, that perhaps will help me on my journey. But fortunately, there was some relaxation just before we left. We, we got back. We drove back. We had our PCR test. Uh, we had uh, all the other paperwork that's required. Quarantine, two and eight day tests which we paid an, ex an exorbitant amount. The, the tests in France were free, so that was a bit galling. But we made it, and and we made it back. But it, it has been difficult, and, and it's been stressful. When we when we came back, we couldn't bring our, our UK-registered car back because it was a lease car. I phoned up the customs, and they said, no, if you bring it into France, you're importing it, and then we'll want to treat it as an import, and there'll be um, TVA tax to pay on it, and what have you, import duties. I said, but it's not mine, it's lease car. So you can't bring it in there. <laughs> so I had to get rid of the, the lease car and came over on the train, which was uh, long and arduous, but we got here okay. And um, now I've got to get a French car to make the journeys back to the UK because French authorities regard me leaving the country as going to my second second uh, home. And um, that that should work. 
And driving is the best way to go to the UK? Um, I've flown on many occasions, but I've also had quite stressful occasions when flying. Uh, on one occasion, coming over to Perpignan, I got to Stansted and they said, oh, the um, fire brigade at the Perpignan airport have gone on strike, so we're not flying there. I said, well, where can you fly me to? Well, uh, I said, have you got any other flights? There's anywhere in the south of France? I'm here now. I want to go. They looked and said, well... Biarritz, is that any good? <laughs> That's on, on the Atlantic coast, about five, six hours away, uh, drive away. I said, uh, okay, but I've got a hire car booked for Perpignan, so I had to rush around the airport. Had half an hour to find a, a change of hire car. Managed to get one, because it, it was an Easter weekend, managed to get one for Biarritz, and then we had to drive over and stay over in Po to get over here. So that was all rather stressful. Another occasion going back, uh, Ryanair decided that it was a bit too windy for the plane to land, so they landed in Toulouse, bussed the passengers to Perpignan to finish their flight, but wouldn't take us to Toulouse. And the announcement was made that the flight was cancelled and we were just sitting in the airport. Fortunately, the announcement was in French, so those people understood French, rushed up to the Ryanair desk and there was sort of about... 10, 15 people at the desk before the, and everybody else was just sitting there in their chairs, not having understood the announcement. And I was able to get a flight back from Girona, but it meant I had to give the hire car back. So come up the valley on the train, stay the night, and then actually had to get a taxi from here to Girona that cost more than the, the flight. But it was the only way of getting back to the UK that weekend. So, And I decided that um, driving, you're you're more the master of your own destiny. So I decided that even though it's a long drive and even though it requires an overnight stop and is more expensive, that's my preferred way of getting there and back now. Do you take the auto route or do you go the... I've done it both ways. Normally I take the... Uh, I take the auto route because then I can do it in two days and, um, and just stay in a cheap hotel, usually around Orléans. Occasionally, uh, you know, at the end of a summer holiday, I might have an extra night in France and stay on the coast and have a, a day or an afternoon and evening at the seaside on the uh, Côte Pal around Calais, which has got the white cliffs just the same as on the other side of the channel. But it's a nice area, nice sandy beaches and uh, kite surfing on the expansive sands. Yeah, very nice. I don't know that regional. There's too many regions in France that I haven't been to yet, uh, despite having lived here for 12 years. So it's got everything there except the weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you've been living here, are there, are there things that you've discovered about life in France that you didn't know when you were just visiting on for holidays about France or the French? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, m- mostly cultural things. Um, just to give you one example, we've got um, French friends, French fa- um, family living in France as well. My brother living in the uh, Paris region and my sister-in-law. Uh, my nephews are all um, French, although they they consider themselves dual nationality, I'm sure. But they they were brought up mostly in, in France. So staying, in, staying with them, I learned a little bit about the differences between France and England, particularly the food, patterns of eating... Simple things like that. But more subtle things, I think, I've learned with uh, uh, staying with French friends and not staying with French friends. So those people who I invited into my home in the UK, so some became friendly with um, a few French students who my brother sent over to for language vacations in the UK. A couple of people who came to stay over with me in the UK became very good friends. Got so uh, a couple on the 
island of Noirmoutier, who I visited regularly, and a guy from the Côte d'Ivoire, who came over to Paris as a student and never went back. And I've kept in regular contact with them, and I've stayed, stayed with them. In much the way that you might have friends over to stay the weekend with you in the UK. Not much difference there. But for friends who um, are more, well, good friends, but perhaps on slightly more casual footing, um, very rarely get invited into their homes. You would generally meet someone at a bar, you'd make an arrangement to go out for a meal out, but it's rather special to be invited into people's homes, and that's more of a family thing than a friendship thing. So some people have sort of cottoned on to the fact that English people tend to, you know, socialise together over over a meal and might invite me to do the same. But other people who perhaps I don't know quite so well, it will be come over for aperos. Mm. So say you go over for a drink and actually it probably does turn out to be a, <laughs> more of a meal. But it, it isn't the sort of sit-down evening meal with candles <laughs> or whatever that you might have. In, on a cold winter's day in, in, in the UK. It's, it's more of an outside event, or often an outside event, uh, particularly around here. So, you know, little cultural differences like that, little things like um, I find the French are... People say they're very rude, that so they can be very rude when they go to the UK, the French are rude. I never found them rude. I found them sometimes disorganised. I found rudeness sometimes when I'm in banks or with state employees, uh, fonctionnaires who, mm. who perhaps have been doing the job too long and, and um, don't regard the, the client as king. In France, the client isn't king. I've been to, into banks and, uh, you know, the bank teller is on the phone to her boyfriend or something and, uh, and that takes precedent. You wait there twiddling your thumbs at the counter until she's finished and she, she, says, she says, bonjour, and you carry on. And you just have to be have to be patient. In our street here, where only one car can pass, if, you travel, if you're coming down the street and the guy, someone's in front of you and they're talking to a neighbour, then, you know, just turn the ignition off and wait a few minutes. <laughs> they're, not being, they're not being rude. That's just the way things are. But every time I walk in down the street, everyone will say bonjour. And not to say bonjour, if you go into a shop, it would be considered a little bit offish, a bit rude. So... You know, I have to learn, I've had to learn that you don't go into a shop and just look at the, the person serving you. You look them in the eyes and you say bonjour. Preferably you get it in before they do. <laughs> so, you know, little things like that, really. Anything you think or anything you wish you'd learnt earlier? Um, no, I don't think so. I think because I've been coming for a long time, I've learnt things little by little. I think I've, I've learnt not to get cross, that it doesn't serve you. I remember once after a very long journey, arriving in, in Calais, and I think we'd been travelling through France, had kids in the back of the car, they'd been crying, I'd been driving too long, and I went into a coffee bar and ordered some coffee, and went back, with a, it was a takeout, I think, and had my coffee, and then looked at the bill, and it was, it was twice what it should have been. And uh, I thought, oh, that's some French guy trying to rip me off. And I went back and I got cross. And I said, You've, you know, just because I'm English, you're trying to rip me off. And he just looked calmly and said, uh, but monsieur, you ordered a double. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> uh, I was just overtired and I lost my, lost my uh, cool. And so I went, walked, walked off down the street and I thought, now what's he going to think of British people? You know, that was just 
unacceptable. So I went back and I said to him, look, look, monsieur, very sorry, very sorry, my fault. I shouldn't have said that. And I put it right. But I have experienced rudeness in France, but generally it's the opposite. Generally, I find people quite helpful, particularly on a personal level. Sometimes I think that the French need a little bit more training in customer service, but... (laughs) But I think things are, are improving. And I generally I find when I phone up customer helplines, I, you know, it's okay. Well, that sounds like a great place to finish. Uh, positive. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your time and, and thoughts and stories uh, today. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure for me, and I, I think it will be for all our listeners too. So thanks very much, Michael. No problem. Thank you. Thanks again, Michael. It really was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciated hearing his thoughtful and well-informed perspective on life in France. We actually went on talking for another hour after I stopped recording, with more gold nuggets of information and myriad insights shared by Michael. Certainly enough for another episode, so maybe if I make it back to Valnia one day, which I hope I do. To wrap up this episode, I decided to go with a quote, in fact two quotes, from an obvious source, Rudyard Kipling, the writer being very much associated with Valnia. The first is very short. It seems to me to explain quite neatly the pleasure I experienced talking with Michael. If history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So thank you again for the stories, Michael. And to end, a short passage from Kipling's poem, We and They, which reflects and resonates with much of what Michael said. All good people agree, and all good people say. All nice people, like us, are we, and everyone else is they. But if you cross over the sea, instead of over the way, you may end by, think of it, looking on we as only a sort of they. Thank you all for listening. Until next time.